0: What you find absolutely robustly is that poor countries do not have the means to carry out these basic interventions, not big, mysterious interventions of cutting edge uh, technological issues, but basics. They don't have the funds. And we're so cruel that we don't acknowledge that fact in the world. are listening to In Pursuit of Development with Dan Bannock.
1: There are very few scholars who are as energetic, as prolific, and as influential as Jeffrey Sachs. He's a world-renowned economist and university professor at Columbia University in New York. He held the position of director of the Earth Institute at Columbia University from 2002 to 2016 and currently heads the Center for Sustainable Development. He's a commissioner of the UN Broadband Commission for Development, an SDG advocate for UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, and president of the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network. Jeff and I began by discussing why the system of global development is not working. We thereafter discussed ways to break the deadlock at the World Trade Organization, WTO, what it would take to reform specific multilateral institutions, what makes aid effective, the role of experts in global development, and the impact of the Millennium Villages project that he initiated in 2005. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Please contact us by email or on social media with your questions, comments and suggestions and tell your friends and colleagues about our show. It was lovely to see you and Sonia a couple of months ago, Jeff. I'm delighted to have you on the show today. Welcome.
0: Great to be with you. Thanks so much, Dan.
1: Earlier this year, in July 2021, a short video of your comments at the UN Food Systems pre-summit actually went viral. I watched that video a couple of times. And in that video, you had a powerful message that we have a system of global development that's not working. We need a different system, one that is based on the principles of human dignity, human rights, sovereignty, and economic rights. And in, that, in those comments, it appeared to me that you were particularly critical of the role of the private sector, the role of billionaires who go to space but uh, who do not pay enough tax. You were critical also of governments that do not provide adequate funding to, among other organizations, the UN. The rich are hoarding everything, as you put it. What was the response to those comments and that viral video, Jeff? Do you notice any movement in the direction that you outlined in July of this year?
0: You know, the the comment that I gave uh, was a, a bit spurred by listening to uh, a World Bank official speak just before me uh, in that session. Uh, and uh, to, to quote uh, Greta, it was uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yes. uh, that, oh yes we're doing fine, or we, we uh, need to uh, just continue on and persevere with the, the important things we're doing. But the fact of the matter is we have set crucial goals for sustainable development, the 17 SDGs, the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, the goals under the Convention of uh, Biological Diversity, and we're not achieving any of them. My criticism was not really directed at the private sector per se, it was directed mostly at governments in fact but to say to the private sector you're also not going to solve this problem despite the rhetoric let the markets do it i said in my critique that uh, why do we point fingers at countries uh, where our governments invaded occupied colonized created so much havoc often in the, in the backing of private interests, for example, in the mining sector in, in Africa and the agriculture sector in Central America, where the United States intervened horrendously, in part to protect commercial interests and private wealth. The fact of the matter is, Dan, our system is not organized to achieve the goals that we have set. It's not even organized <laughs> to think through how to achieve the goals that we've set one of my sad conclusions in almost a a career lifetime of working with governments and officialdom on these issues is how little true problem solving activity there is how little activity there is to say well we set the following goals what does it take to achieve them we have negotiations about words, about treaties. We have promises, commitments, but what we don't have is solution based analytics and cooperation. We don't sit around the table to say, how are we going to get the vaccines to everybody as we promised? We don't sit around the table and say, how are we going to decarbonize globally? We negotiate words, commitments that then aren't honored. We promise, and when I say we, I mean the the global system commits certain sums, for example, $100 billion per year minimum by 2020 for climate action in developing countries, then there's no real effort to determine how that funding is going to be reached, who is going to be responsible for it, how it is going to be monitored and so forth. In other words, the, the words are just put forward and then nothing is done to back them up. And indeed, most of what is done is prevarication so that uh, those words are not fulfilled.
1: So are we referring then here to a crisis of governance, a crisis of multilateralism. I'm thinking of your previous uh, writings on these issues. Take, for example, the case of the WTO, the rules-based open trading system. There's now this growing belief that trade rules also need to adapt to uh, and also to contribute, not just to economic goals, but also towards social and environmental goals. You've argued that there's now uh, a unique opportunity to make those rules, the the rules-based trading system, a fundamental pillar for global development, especially for achieving the SDGs. But that is not happening, is it? And the WTO, like many other institutions, Jeff, is under considerable pressure. Negotiations on a comprehensive development agenda have floundered due to disagreements over agricultural subsidies, over intellectual property rights. Uh, members are talking about, you know, separate bilateral and regional free trade agreements. That is what they prefer in, in terms of advancing their trade interests. There are lots of groups like farmers, labor groups accusing the WTO of focusing too narrowly on corporate in, in interests. India and South Africa have proposed a TRIPS waiver for COVID-19 vaccines and treatments, but that move has been opposed by many of the wealthier countries, including my own country, Norway. There's increasing criticism of the UN's uh, COVAX mechanism for delivering vaccines. The list of grievances is very long, right, Jeff? How should one then think about addressing challenges related to this Perceived crisis, as many would argue, of global governance. How do we break the deadlock at the WTO, as in many other influential multilateral forums?
0: There is a a deep crisis of governance, and we need to understand it and to solve it. So, one basic issue, fundamental in, in a way, rather obvious, but still needing a solution is the fact that we have global problems and politicians at the nation state level. So that is the challenge of multilateralism and it can only work when the major powers understand, acknowledge and operate with the view that they themselves cannot solve their own problems however powerful they are except through multilateralism. So this is a view that the United States government does not accept, for example. In the US political culture right now, and it's pretty much bipartisan for our two major parties, the view has grown over time that what the United States needs is its freedom of action. Maybe it needs its allies. If you're Trump, it doesn't need anything except Trump. If you're Biden, uh, it needs basically your allies. But it does not need to sit down and talk with China. It does not need multilateral approaches. It does not need to bolster the UN system. This is a profound error because the US is up to its eyeballs with crises that it cannot solve on its own. So this is one crisis of governance. A second crisis of governance is that the problems that we face, especially the collision of economy and environment, are not simple problems. Energy transformation is complex. These problems don't operate at the scale of the political business cycle. This is different from short-term macroeconomics or interest group politics. This is system transformation. And even at the national level, our governments are not up to the task in most cases. Certainly the U.S. government is not up to the task. We don't have any kind of planning ministry. We don't have an economy ministry that looks forward. We don't have an integrative structure in government that can take a whole of government long-term approach to these issues. So we're completely floundering, even at the national level, much less at the international so,
1: level. So how, how should we break the deadlock, Jeff?
0: Well, just Dan, just to complete the, uh, the, the, the analysis, there, there are underlying deep weaknesses that we also need to uh, appreciate in terms of government capacity. One is uh, that if you allow a political system to be infiltrated by money uh, to become a plutocracy and from there a kleptocracy, then the possibilities of good governance uh, are gone. And while, uh, of course, uh, there are the, the, the normal places uh, where fingers are pointed, uh, I would start with the United States uh, as a plutocracy and increasingly a kleptocracy. We even had the, the Speaker of the House Make a really ridiculous, uh, pretty despicable statement in recent days that it's okay for the congressmen to be trading on their own account in stocks. What's wrong with that? We're a capitalist system, she said. And (laughs) what we have is a system of corruption uh, in Washington where it's not just that congressmen are trading on their own account, they are governing on their own account. We have the absurdity that the committee, uh, Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources is chaired by uh, all people, the senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, who owns two coal companies. And then we wonder, oh, why don't we get proper decarbonization legislation? Are you kidding? We have uh, the financial industry overseen by senators and congressmen who are large Bitcoin investors. Well, duh. Uh, And this goes on and on in the United States. So we have opened up the doors to massive corruption. And that is another profound source of government failure. And then one more point, Dan, uh, is that not only are the problems global with national level government, not only are the problems complex, and beyond the normal time horizons and requiring transformative thinking. Not only has money infiltrated the political systems of many countries and made it impossible to think straight and to think honestly, we're also in a period of course of massive technological disruption and acceleration with digitalization. So the nature of our very lives how we live, how we work uh, is also changing, disrupting societies tremendously. And again, at least as I view it in the United States, we have a government that is incapable of understanding anything about a Facebook or an Amazon or an Apple, much less uh, doing something to ensure that uh, these uh, giants with capitalizations of $2 trillion or more are operating for the public good in other words the summary is huge challenges global goals that are crucial really crucial for us and a pervasive governance failure and i'm watching it of course from the point of view of my own country the united states which still absurdly murmurs words about u.s leadership and so forth we barely can put one foot in front of the next, and we have an administration talking about leadership. Well, come on, how about standing up straight and getting something done? That would be nice.
1: I know you're a big fan of the United Nations. And here, of course, your own government, the United States, has been less supportive, at least in terms of their financial contributions to certain UN organizations. And this was, I suppose, more the case under President Trump than is the case now. And of course, you've argued that the UN must be a core institution going forward. But what do you think about the role of other institutions? I'm thinking about the World Bank and the IMF and, and, and thinking about You know, during um, COP26, the climate summit recently, many of the financial institutions were promising trillions of dollars to finance solutions to climate change. But but the world's financial system continues to impede, as you've argued, the flow of finance to developing countries. And what is paradoxical is that rich countries are borrowing trillions of dollars, especially during the pandemic. Low-income countries have virtually not had much access to development finance. So there's this ongoing debate, right, on the capacity of the current multilateral system to facilitate economic development and to combat climate disruption. Both the IMF and the World Bank, of course, have come under increased criticism and scrutiny. There is the matter of the Doing Business report, how these institutions must be reformed, that there should be greater representation from low-income countries in leadership positions. And like many others, Jeff, you've been arguing that we must increase the lending to and the borrowing capacity of these low-income countries. So how do you view multilateralism today? Surely major reforms are required, not just at the World Bank and the IMF or the G7 or the G20, but also at the UN. Uh, A lot of suggestions, of course, have been put forward. You've been writing about many of these proposals for reform. But it seems to me that while many talk about the need for reform, very little is actually happening within many of these institutions. So, what would it take, in your view, to genuinely reform some of these multilateral institutions?
0: Great uh, the big question, packed with uh, all sorts of uh, issues. Let me start by saying we have a globally interconnected society, we have global scale challenges and crises whether it's a pandemic or climate change or other earth system changes or the uh, profound social and economic inequalities and instabilities in the world which have a global character to them and we don't have the adequate governance as i've been saying so how to think about this first the logic of our situation, our reality is that we need global governance. That's not a global government necessarily. It means a set of institutions that can address, finance, brainstorm on, find solutions to global scale crises. We need the United Nations, and from a historical point of view, we are still in the early days of global governance. The word international, surprisingly enough in English, was invented only two centuries ago, invented by Jeremy Bentham. We didn't even have the word and the concept of this kind of international reality. It was only at the end of the 18th century, with also a phenomenal essay by Immanuel Kant on perpetual peace that we started to talk in an organized way about global governance. It was an enlightenment concept. We did not have global institutions until the second half of the 19th century with the beginnings of some global institutions for uh, the postal service and for telecommunications beginning, and then for healthcare as an early part of a global scene. We tried the League of Nations after World War I. Of course, the notorious uh, fact that the United States did not sign on to Woodrow Wilson's uh, own concept and left it crippled from the start was a devastating mark. Franklin Roosevelt, our greatest president in U.S. history, revived the idea of a working multilateral institution as the United Nations in the context of World War II, and it came to fruition in 1945. And the World Bank and the IMF are part of the UN family. They're called the Bretton Woods Institutions, but this is one family of multilateral institutions. Now, we've just celebrated the 76th anniversary of the UN, so we're three quarters of a century in, and in many ways, it's a Remarkable set of institutions. But in other ways, it is obvious that in the world today, we need, if relaunch may be a little bit too strong, we definitely need to reform the United Nations institutions and to reintroduce them in a way to the young generation so that this is not seen as institutions of post World War II legacy but rather the crucial functional institutions for the 21st century, which they need to be. That is hard always with institutions at this stage of of, uh, their lives, 76 years. But what is uh, very disturbing and ironic is that the country that invented the United Nations, the United States, has uh, partly abandoned it, walked away from it. And under Trump, our most miserable president in U.S. history, the U.S. left several U.N. organizations, agencies, and processes, just walked out of them. And that disdain reflected a kind of thinking in parts of the American political scene that are, in my view, tragic and absurd and ignorant, uh, all, all in a package. But it's troubling when the most powerful country that presents itself as, quote, the leading country, takes this view with multilateralism. You raise a very specific part of the governance puzzle, which is one that very much concerns me as an economist. My view is that what we need to do requires large investments. Investments are the key to transformation, whether it's in energy or in human Knowledge and capacity through education and health or other urban infrastructure and so forth. You need investment. Investment needs financing. The essence of the kind of world that we should be building, that we are committed to building in the SDGs and in the Paris Agreement, is a fair world in which no one is left behind, an inclusive world. And that means financing of the poorer countries. And that simply doesn't happen. At any scale. And it's one of those things, Dan. And I may be a broken record on it because I've been complaining about this throughout my entire professional life. But for the last 20 years, since I was advisor on the Millennium Development Goals to Kofi Annan and Ban Ki moon, and now on the Sustainable Development Goals and SDG advocate for the UN Secretary General, I've been pointing out we don't have a financial model to finance what we have committed to do. It's not that this would break the bank to achieve the sustainable development goals. The the joke of it is, the irony of it is, at just one or two or maybe 3% of world output per year, we could have the transformation that we so desperately need on this planet. We could end poverty, we could ensure that every child is in school. We could have universal health coverage. We could do all those things at very low cost, but it would require a new financial structure that would channel funds consistently, reliably, on adequate terms from the rich countries to the poor countries. And I would like to see that proverbial roundtable where we're sitting down and honestly, discussing that issue. And that has not occurred to this date. One of the things I pointed out recently is that while there's so much talk as there was at COP26 about how the tens or hundreds of trillions of dollars of assets under management are going to be the key for the poor countries, there is not one single low-income country in the world that has an investment grade rating. And what that means is that there is not one single low income country in the world that can borrow funds on reasonable terms, period. And of the lower middle income countries, there are but two that have an investment grade rating. They happen to be right now, Indonesia and the Philippines. But what it means overall is that half the world lives in places without an investment grade. And to translate that into practical terms, it means that all that talk about the private money that's going to solve the world's problems ain't going to go to half the world, the poor part of the world, and it's not going there. And how to get serious discussion of this most basic fact, remains a a conundrum.
1: I want to pick up on something you mentioned towards the beginning of our conversation, the importance of actual workable solutions. In the very well-known End of Poverty book that you wrote many years ago and in many of your other writings, Jeff, the message, at least as I understand it, is pretty clear and the message is that we know how to solve poverty, how to eradicate poverty. It is more a matter of money, that we have the solutions, but we don't have the money. That is correct. Is it really the lack of money that is always the problem? I'm asking you this because in some of the literature, of course, many would argue that we're not and cannot be sure that we have the solutions to solve poverty, to promote global development that we are constantly searching for those solutions?
0: It's the lack of goodwill, because the problem is that most of what we need to do is known. A part, of course, is never known, but with goodwill and sufficient funding would be learned in the process of doing. So there's always learning by doing. There's always contextual facts But the basic problem is we're leaving half the world without the means to move forward. And that is cruel. And that is absolutely evident from the basic analytics. I've worked with the IMF in recent years with the Fiscal Affairs Department to look at the costs of basic things, Dan, not not big puzzles, but things like getting kids in school. Or basic healthcare coverage, or clean water and basic sanitation, and so on. So, the basic costs, and you can use unit costs to say that covering uh, the population to ensure that kids could be in school is around so much uh, funding needed, and healthcare at a minimum is so much, and so forth. And while that's not necessarily to the uh, precise dollar, what you find absolutely robustly is that poor countries, both the households themselves and their governments, which uh, collect taxes from poor households, do not have the means to carry out these basic interventions. Not big, mysterious interventions of cutting edge uh, technological issues but basics they don't have the funds and we're so cruel that we don't acknowledge that fact in the world which is easy to know and it's easy to know why hundreds of millions of kids aren't in school it's easy to know why life expectancy in many low income countries is 30 years below or 20 years below that of of uh, the rich countries it's not a mystery this is what a vast vast body of knowledge demonstrates and is actually rather straightforward to synthesize what gets me is that it isn't viewed as an operational need so just to give the point uh, its uh, specificity after the imf showed and showed with a lot of uh, talent and sophistication that there are hundreds of billions of dollars needed for the low-income and lower-middle-income countries to achieve the sustainable development goals. And after those reports were sent to the board of the IMF, precisely nothing happened. That doesn't- that's
1: the $400 million gap, $400 billion,
0: yeah. The $400 billion billion per year gap. You know, what happened? In a normal world, in an ethical world one would say oh wow that's a big gap what do we do about it i'm still waiting for some g7 minister to say oh that's a big gap what do we do about it i can write op-eds from you know uh, from from morning till night and you don't get the finance ministers in the rich country economies to say oh what do we do about it because after all we promised that we would uh, make this financing. And as a macroeconomist, I I make the basic point that what is 400 billion a year among friends after all, that is 0.4 of 1% of world output per year, hardly a crushing number. It just happens to be very large if you're impoverished, but it's not large if you're rich. And so a modicum of moral seriousness would lead to a different response.
1: You know, there are two aspects of this which I find particularly uh, relevant for our discussion today, Jeff. One has to do with how effective, of course, foreign aid is or can be, because as you know, there's this polarized political discourse in many parts of the world, including in, in some of our countries on aid effectiveness, on whether aid is actually working or can work in global development. And the other has to do with the role of experts, and there's been considerable pushback in recent years from many who point to the importance or the fact that we should be giving more importance to local knowledge. We should be thinking about who is articulating the interests of whom, on whose behalf, that we should not just be listening to experts flying in and telling us what to do. And of course, you've been involved in this debate uh, for many years with Bill Easterly uh, on the role of planners, on the role of experts versus searchers. And I suppose, One could say you're a bit of both, you're a planner, you're a searcher, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on this debate on aid effectiveness and the role of experts in global development.
0: Look, you know, in Norway, the government spends about 50% of national income each year, it collects it in revenues, and then it spends it for a decent society. And if you look around your neighborhood, in Sweden, in Denmark, in Finland, in Iceland, oh, it's the same. And in Germany, it's about forty-five percent of GDP. We don't sit around, except in crazy places like the United States, and debate. Oh, you don't really need the money for healthcare, education. That doesn't work. You know, you can't tax one person and give money to another person. That doesn't work because this was resolved a hundred years ago. That The basic social democratic idea is that you have a society and people should contribute to the common good and the financing is needed because schools and hospitals and doctors and roads and environmental protection aren't free and so they should be financed and there's no great angst about this the only great angst is in rich countries saying oh we can't give to poor countries money isn't the issue now, this is by the way not only nonsense it has a deep historical root in anglo-saxon libertarian philosophical ideas the same ones that left the indians to starve at the end of the 19th century in uh, repeated el nino waves and uh, droughts uh, that and famine that accompanied that it has uh, the roots in racist ideologies, which said we're great in the rich world because the poor countries are deficient, backwards, inferior, whatever it is. Now we use different language. It's, uh, well, they're corrupt. They can't do this. They can't do that. But somehow it's all an ideology of libertarian idea, which is distinctively originally British Then American Protestants uh, took it on, that the the rich are rich because they're great and the poor are poor because they're miserable. And there's nothing you can do with the poor except not have them be a burden. This is how all of the aid discussion is. It's absurd. It's absolutely possible to take some funding and provide some health care with it, just like there is within Norwegian society. And I know it because I helped to engineer that in the few cases where it's been possible to actually raise funds from rich countries. I helped Dr. Brundtland to establish uh, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria was an idea that I promoted. Money came in, and AIDS was treated. Ah, Voila, it was not so complicated. I helped set up and uh, helped design uh, the original concepts around several uh, funding streams for health in the United States, PEPFAR, and the President's Malaria Initiative, these rare examples where money actually went in to solve a problem, and those problems got addressed decisively, and people say, oh, I'm surprised that worked. What's the mystery? It's not so hard to do any of this, except in an ideology that was designed to exculpate the rich and the powerful. And one should Learn some of the history of the moral thought from John Locke onward to understand that this is a kind of intellectual game, unfortunately. It is a game of the rich to say, ah, we don't have responsibility to anyone else. Their problems are obviously due to their deficiencies. So this is what I take this to be. And on the question of, expertise and so forth, it's it's so unreal compared to the actual facts, which is there are so many talented people around, and the talented people in poor countries know that more funding is needed so that there can be more schools or clinics or clean water points or sewerage or other things. It's not a mystery. It's not this idea of, of... someone flying in and saying, do this, do that. It's not as if we don't have systems that are basic and, well, we use electricity, but uh, local indigenous knowledge will do something else. Come on. This is not so hard, but we have a thousand excuses in the rich countries to say, don't do what we do ourselves within our own societies. So what I would like to see is global Social democracy, social democracy that is not limited to our national borders. Why doesn't that happen? Because the politicians are elected nationally. That's it. That comes back to what we started with the challenges of transboundary governance. If we had politicians elected internationally, believe me, these questions would not be asked then we would understand that money needs to flow to places where it's urgently needed and currently lacking.
1: You are obviously an academic superstar, Jeff. You hang out with rock stars and celebrities. You are uh, an expert on global development. You're a macroeconomist. You've been advising many governments around the world uh, for, for many decades, but you've also rolled up your sleeves and you started the Millennium Villages Project where there was a considerable emphasis on promoting this integrated approach to rural development. And as I understand it, the Millennium Villages Project selected uh, certain villages in several African countries, and there were numerous goals of the project, such as the promotion of agriculture. It was about providing seed and fertilizer support, farmer training, crop diversification, but there was also an emphasis on health, a focus on uh, mosquito nets, and there was emphasis in this project on education, infrastructure, sanitation, uh, you name it. In hindsight, Jeff, what has been the legacy of the Millennium Villages project? There's been some criticism, of course, about how The sites were chosen, the costs, and not least the the actual impact. What do you think has actually worked? And what do you think now of the idea of the big push as a solution more broadly to challenges of global development?
0: Well, I think the Millennium Project showed that in every sector,
1: it's quite clear
0: that there are huge areas of progress that can be made quickly. And decisively, there can be huge reductions of uh, of uh, malaria or AIDS or other infectious disease burdens. There can be big uptake of vaccinations. You can get children in school. Uh, you can have uh, microgrids and mini grids. The, the basic point of that project was to show: look at all of these things that we know, and they are operational even in very poor rural settings. The conditions for those interventions are vastly better now in 2021 than they were when we started in 2005. When we started that project in 2005, there were flip phones. And uh, in some of the villages, not a single phone anywhere. Now there is wireless broadband available pervasively, And of course, we know what that means in terms of every system for development, for telemedicine, for kids in school, for monitoring infrastructure, for uh, electrification, for everything, uh, for payment systems. So the conditions for rapid progress in development are better now than ever, actually, aside from the fact that we're hunkering down from a pandemic uh, ripping through. The world for this uh, tragic moment. But the ability to use digital technologies and many other really sound approaches means that the opportunity to move forward quickly is better than ever. Indeed, one can move to national scale faster than ever because you can train online. Uh, You could have teachers uh, deployed very quickly, community health workers deployed very quickly. You can do things that could not be done before. So in that context, what is a big push? A big push is investment to provide the infrastructure for what is needed for sustainable development. That means rapidly electrifying the economy in some places still have only 10 or even less of a a percent of the population with the access to electricity in rural areas in many of the poor countries, that could change within two, three, four years if we put our minds to it and if we put the financing to it. We could have universal access to broadband within the next few years because physically broadband is within reach of probably 80 or 90% of the world right now but many of those that have broadband within reach can't afford under the current structures to actually have devices and have access that could change dramatically as it is in india by the way with the tremendous breakthroughs of geo and now geo next and uh, and uh, new innovative financing so there are huge breakthroughs that can be achieved in all of the basic infrastructure, in healthcare, in training, in getting kids in school. And that's what it means to have a a big push. It it means let's not sit around and say, hmm, wonder whether electricity would be helpful. Uh, And uh, that's how we treat it right now. Or we say, okay, we'll give X amount for electrification. And then I say, yes, that would cover 1% of the gap. And uh, everyone nods and moves on as if the other 99% doesn't therefore present a serious challenge, uh, even an affront to the way the system is currently operating.
1: You know, over the years, I've been trying to promote a much more optimistic outlook on global development, and I've been devising academic courses, giving talks on what works, highlighting promising practices and success stories, because the global development narrative, as you know, Jeff, can be pretty depressing that nothing works, that all our efforts are futile, but then there are all of these success stories such as rapid economic growth in many parts of the world, major improvements in social protection, such as the, uh, the, the introduction of cash transfers and how that has helped many countries, our ability to combat disease, the rise of China. There's a long list of success stories. But I'm also aware of all those challenges that remain, including many of the challenges that you've pointed to in our conversation today. How do we balance the discourse by keeping in mind all the challenges ahead while also appreciating the success stories? This is surely going to be crucial if we are to encourage greater action, increased commitment, not just from governments and the private sector, but also from citizens, civil society organizations, and academics like us.
0: I think there are enormous reasons for practical, realistic optimism, assuming that uh, a couple of things happen. One, that the United States does not provoke a major geopolitical crisis with China or with Russia or with uh, or or in some other way. And I, I put it in that provocative way. We don't have time to elaborate, but I think the responsibility lies principally with the United States. So the first is global peace. Second is, global cooperation to say, let's solve these problems. Let's achieve the goals that we have set out to achieve. That mindset change would have a profound effect. Third, practically, let's finance the transformative investments, whether it is digital or electrification with green renewable energy or solutions uh, for telemedicine or education or rapid training that we know works and that are powerful, scalable, and key components of success. So if we follow the basic logic, stay peaceful, orient towards problem solving, and put our finances in the service of our goals, will be successful, Dan.
1: It's always great fun chatting with you, Jeff. Thank you so much for coming on my show today.
0: What a pleasure. Anytime. And Happy New Year.
1: If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the news among your friends and share it on social media. The Twitter handle for this podcast is Pod.
0: Thank you for listening to In Pursuit of Development with Professor Dan Bannock from the University of Oslo's Centre for Development and the Environment. Please email your questions, comments and suggestions to inpursuitofdevelopment at gmail.com.